Sirah, a biography of Muhammad, the last messenger of Allah, written by Professor Dr. Safwat Khalilovich. Chapter 33 Boycott and the Year of Grief Pagan's Campaign Against the Prophet After the failed attempts to make Abu Talib waver and turn him against Muhammad peace be upon him, the pagans decided to intensify their attacks and mistreatment of the Prophet himself. Since they had earlier physically abused his followers, they decided to do the same to him. In addition to verbal attacks, curses, mockery, and abusive language. One day, Abu Lahab's son, Utaybah, came to see the Prophet. Utaybah had previously been married to the Prophet's daughter, Ummu Kulthum, but divorced her when the Prophet started receiving the revelation in order to offend him. He said threateningly, I do not believe in the Quranic verses by the star when it sets or who then approached coming down, the latter being a reference to Angel Gabriel. Utaiba then dashed at the prophet to punch him, tore his shirt and spat at him, but to the spit did not reach the prophet's noble face. Then the prophet prayed, O Allah, send one of your lions at him. Ibn Hisham records that the Prophet's prayer was answered. Utaiba and a group of Quraysh traveled to Al-Sham. They arrived in a place called El-Zarqa and decided to spend the night there. They noticed a lion prowling around them and Utaiba exclaimed, Woe is me, by God, the lion will eat me, just as Muhammad asked in his supplication. Muhammad will kill me from Mecca, although I'm here in Al-Sham, so far away from him. And, indeed, the lion sized him of all the people in the group and slit his throat. Biographers recorded numerous instances of the pagans' abuse and assault on the Prophet, peace be upon him. During those hard times, full of tribulations and adversities, some of those insults are even recorded in the Qur'an. Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira once asked, Is the revelation truly sent down to Muhammad instead of me, and distinguished leader of Quraysh? And is Abu Masud, Amr ibn Umair al-Thaqafi, the chief of the Thaqif tribe, also bypassed? The two of us are the lords of Ataif and Mecca, respectively. Thereupon Allah revealed. And they said, Why was this Qur'an not sent down to a distinguished man from either of the two cities? Are they the ones who share out your Lord's grace? We are the ones who give them their share of livelihood in this world, and we have raised some of them above others in rank, so that some may take others into service. Your Lord's grace is better than anything they accumulate. Chapter 43 Verses from 31 to 32
Agnes ibn Shuraik al-Thakafi was a man whose opinion was appreciated by the Arabs. He frequently insulted the Messenger of God, peace be upon him, and contested his words. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse about him and those like him, such as Al-Walid ibn Al-Mugira and Ubay ibn Khalif. Do not yield to any contemptible, swearer, to any backbiter, slendermonger, or hinderer of good, to anyone who is sinful, aggressive, coarse, and on top of all that, an imposter. Chapter 68, verses from 10 to 13. Abu Jehel, whose name was Amr ibn Hisham, Ubay ibn Khalif, and Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt stood out among the people who persecuted the Prophet, peace be upon him. Ibn Hisham wrote that Ubay ibn Khalif and Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt were very close friends, almost like brothers. Uqba once sat next to the Messenger of God, peace be upon him, and listened to his address. But when Ubay heard about it, he rushed to Uqba's place forthwith, and the first thing he told him was, Is it possible that you were sitting next to Muhammad, listening to his address? I will not look at you ever again, let alone talk to you, if ever you sit next to him, listen to his speech, or pass by him without spitting in his face. He swore firmly. Uqba indeed heeded his words. Allah sent down a revelation related to the two men. On that day, the evildoer will bite his own hand and say, If only I had taken the same path as the messenger, woe is me. If I only I had not taken so and so as a friend, he led me away from the revelation after it reached me. Satan has always betrayed mankind. Chapter 25, verses from 27 to 29. Ubay ibn Khalif once came to see Allah's Messenger, peace be upon him. He carried in his hand a decayed bone that crumbled to touch. O Muhammad, said he, you claim that God will bring this to life. After it has rotten so, he then crumbled in his fist and then blew the dust in the Prophet's direction. Yes, I claim so, replied the Prophet. Allah will resurrect it, just as he will resurrect you after you have decayed and will then lead you to the fire. Allah then revealed. He disputes openly, producing arguments against us, forgetting his own creation. He says, who can give life back to bones after they have decayed? Say, he who created them in the first place will give them life again. He has full knowledge of every act of creation. It is he who produces fire for you out of the green tree. Lowland of the green tree low, and behold, and from this you kindle fire. Chapter 36, verses from 77 to 80. 
The prophet, peace be upon him, patiently endured the pagan's insults and harassment, praying to the exalted Allah for help and protection and encouraging his followers to endure. Sira authors recorded examples of Allah's direct interventions to protect his favorite and chosen one. Sahifa document on the boycott of Muslims. When Quraysh realized that a considerable number of the Prophet's followers were gone to the land where they were granted personal and property, security and freedom of religion, and that Umar and Hamza also converted to Islam, which considerably strengthened the position of the Prophet peace be upon him and the first Muslims. They concluded that Islam would get new allies and supporters among the many Arab tribes who made the annual pilgrimage to the Kaaba. It could be expected that Islam, a religion of common sense and well-balanced teachings suitable for human nature and needs, would spread to other Arab tribes. In order to prevent it, Quraysh convened and made a decision to draft a document, Arabic Sahifa, undertaking not to give their daughters in marriage to members of the Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib clans, or to marry from these clans, and not to sell to or buy anything from them. When they reached an agreement about it, they wrote it down on a sheet of paper, verified it and hung it in the center of the Kaaba as a sign of their resolve. One of the chief objectives of the boycott was to isolate the Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib clans and thus force Abu Talib and other Hashimites to stop protecting the Prophet and hand him over to Quraysh, who wanted to kill him and so prevent the spreading of Islam. For security reasons, the Banu Hashim gathered around Abu Talib in that quarter of the Meccan Valley, where he and most of the clan lived, known in the literature as the Shib of Abu Talib, Abu Talib's estate or gorge. After the Hashemites assembled around Abu Talib, Abu Lahab and his wife moved to another house of his far away from there to demonstrate their full loyalty to the pagans' camp. The boycott began on the first of Muharram, of the seventh year of the prophethood, and lasted full three years, until the month of Muharram, of the tenth year of the prophethood. In that period, the Muslims lived in absolute isolation and suffered food shortages. So they survived by eating leaves, leather, and the likes. Cries of the starving children and women could often be heard from the place where they were isolated. Through secret channels, they would sometimes receive supplies sufficient to barely keep them alive. They could get out of their isolation place only during the sacred month, Al-Ashhur al-Hurum. Affluent Muslims from other clans did a lot to secretly help the boycotted Muslims at Abu Talib's estate. Umar and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhuma stood out in that effort. They found various ways to deliver the assistance. 
Historians recorded that after two years of generous spending on the way of Allah, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu could no longer be considered an affluent man. After three years, which were very difficult for the Muslims, Quraysh decided to lift the boycott in the month of Muharram of the tenth year of the Prophethood. The isolation of such a large group drew an even greater attention to the Prophet and the Muslims, and the religion that Muhammad preached was talked about even more in the whole Arabia. In addition, some Quraysh disapproved of the absolute isolation of their fellow clansmen, some of whom were their close relatives. Chronicles mention Hisham ibn Amr, Mu'tim ibn Adi, and Zema ibn al-Aswad, among the individuals who condemned the boycott. Siras read that when Quraysh decided to lift the three-year-long boycott, they were shocked by the condition of the Sahifa hanging inside a Kaaba, as worms had eaten up its whole text except the opening words. Bismikallahumma. In your name, O God. The believers regarded it as a sign of Allah's help and support. There cannot be any compromise on fundamental tenets of faith. When the boycott ended, Quraysh chiefs devoted their energy to try persuade the Prophet to accept a compromise. They proposed that the Muslims and the pagans would profess and practice both faith, with Quraysh worshipping Allah as prescribed by Islam for one period, and the Muslims in turn worshipping Quraysh idols. This compromise would allegedly have allowed for all to live in peace and satisfaction. Naturally, the Prophet, peace be upon him, did not accept this proposal. Surah 109 The disbelievers of the Noble Qur'an was revealed on that occasion. Say, Prophet, disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship. You do not worship what I worship. I will never worship what you worship. You will never worship what I worship. You have your religion, and I have mine. This is an irrefutable proof that there cannot be any compromise when it comes to the fundamental tenets of the faith. The quoted Quranic verse, Lekum dinukum waliyadin, You have your religion, and I have mine, applies in that respect. This is something that the Muslims who are involved in an interfaith dialogue should particularly be aware of. Islam advocates a coexistence and tolerance of different cultures and religions, but departure from its fundamental tenets is impermissible. The Year of Grief Soon after the boycott was lifted, the Prophet's elderly uncle Abu Talib fell ill. The illness did not subside, and he passed away in the month of Rajab of tenth year of the prophethood. Abu Talib did not convert to Islam, but was nevertheless a great support to the Prophet and the Muslims. 
two months and three days following the death of Abu Talib, Khadija radiallahu anha, the Prophet's wife and mother of the faithful, Ummul Mu'minin, also passed away. This happened in the month of Ramadan of the tenth year of the prophethood. She was 65 when she died and the Prophet was 50 by the lunar calendar. The Prophet, peace be upon him, spent one quarter of a century together with Khadija radiallahu anha. He always had her understanding and support. She raised his spirits in the moments of disappointment and sorrow. She protected him from malevolent persons and aggressors, not sparing either herself or her wealth. She gave birth to six children of the prophets, two sons and four daughters. She was a true believer from the very beginning, from the moment the prophet told her he had started receiving the revelation. For all that, the prophet loved and respected her very much. He showed his love for her even after her death, when his other wives would ask him why he mentioned her. So often the prophet answered, She believed that I was a prophet when no one else did. She confirmed I was telling the truth when everyone called me a liar. She helped me with her wealth when others refused to do so, and Allah gave me children with her only. These two events, the death of Uncle Abu Talib, and soon afterward, the death of wife Khatija greatly distressed the Prophet, peace be upon him. Naturally, he was aware that it was destiny and divine designation, but the loss of such important persons in a short period of time filled his heart with ache and sorrow. The idol worshippers' attacks on the Prophet and the Muslims grew in strength after the death of Abu Talib, whose standing and authority with Quraysh tribe had served as a shield to the Prophet. So, all these things combined are the reason why this year, the tenth of the prophethood, is referred to as the year of grief, Ammul Khuzn. The persecution and mistreatment by the pagans became so hard after Abu Talib's death that the Prophet, peace be upon him, lost every will to remain in Mecca. It was a dire need that made him go out to Taif, his primary goal having been to transfer the religion to that city, but also to garner its citizens' help against Quraysh, their primitivism and brutality. However, he did not find anyone there who would understand and help him. Moreover, people in that city even threw stones at him, thus hurting both his body and soul. The persecution by the pagans that year was very painful and difficult for all Muslims. The Prophet's friend and companion, Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, decided to move to Abyssinia, got ready and set off, but eventually gave up the idea. In the month of Shawwal, of the tenth year of the prophethood, the Prophet married Sevda bint Zemma, radiallahu anha. She had emigrated to Abyssinia with her first husband, Sakran ibn Amr. 
She returned to Mecca after he had died there, although some historians claim that he returned to Mecca and died there before the Muslims emigrated from Mecca to Medina. She was of an advanced age, and the Prophet married her too, and the Prophet married her to take care of her. She was the first woman he married after Khadija radiallahu anha had died. Some years later, Sevda granted her nights with the Prophet to Aisha radiallahu anha. How did the first Muslims hold out? The Muslims of our time also suffer great tribulations and setbacks. They are victims of mass killings, massacres, genocides, for example in Bosnia, Palestine, Chechnya. They are unjustly accused of terrorism. Their most sacred objects are being defiled to mention the case of the stomping on the Noble Quran by some U.S. soldiers in Iraq and Guantanamo, or the blasphemous cartoons in Danish, Norwegian, and some other Western magazines portraying the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, as a terrorist and a primitive person. In a nutshell, the situation is very difficult and upsetting. The question is how to endure and overcome these challenges. Important lessons for the present day may be drawn from the events in the first period of Islam. Throughout the whole Meccan period of the revelation, Muslims were exposed to intense persecution, harassment, defiling of their sacred objects, and the cruelest mental and physical tortures. It was particularly intensified during the boycott and after Abu Talib's death. However, they endured all that patiently, pledging their wealth and lives on the path of Islam. How strong the perseverance and the faith of these people must have been. Actually, how did they manage to withstand it all? Obviously, there are several reasons that made it possible for the first Muslims to hold out in the face of everything they went through. The first, strong faith, Iman, is a precondition for perseverance in anything. The first Muslims were true believers, and the strength of their faith alleviated the hardships they went through. Do modern Muslims raise their children to be true believers? This is a question that every parent blessed with progeny by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should ask himself. In particular, this is a question for those who decide on the curriculum at the institutions educating the teaching staff that will interpret and communicate Islam to future generations. Is the missionary spirit nourished with these young men and women to make them ready for personal sacrifice in the way of God and for placing Allah's pleasure and the interests of His religion before their personal interests? The responsibility of the persons who decide about it is enormous indeed. The second, as the Muslim leader, the Prophet, peace be upon him, personally identified with his followers' situation. As noted earlier, 
he was also a victim of abuse, insults, and physical attacks. It was Allah's wisdom and providence that the Prophet's two great protectors and supporters, his uncle Abu Talib and wife Khatija, died. The Prophet was to carry the burden of life troubles and tribulations on his own. The third, seeking consolation in the Quran and prayers to the Almighty Allah. At the times of terrible tortures and violence they suffered, the companions turned to the Quran, read its messages and tales of ancient peoples and allusions to the victory and success awaiting the faithful. For them it was a source of strength and motivation to withstand all hardships and ordeals. In these difficult times they turned to Allah, prayed to Him to help them and strengthen them on His path. Our times are also the times of serious challenges for all Muslims. So the need for supplication and an earnest plea to Allah to help and provide His protection and shelter is so great that it defies description. For that reason, the Muslims should pray a lot to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fourth. Despite a difficult situation, the Prophet peace be upon him ponders on it and develops a strategy. He suggested to the companions that they should take refuge for one period, that is, move to Abyssinia, where they would be protected. The Prophet was also looking for a new location. He went to Taif, presented the idea of Islam to Arab tribes, thus trying to find new followers for the benefit of all mankind. The present day Muslims generally do not use enough the possibilities to act in real time and space. Many just stand by, often criticizing the existing situation, but unfortunately doing nothing to improve it. One of these reasons for this is certainly the fact that spreading Islamic ideas today is mostly approached in an unorganized manner, lacking prior plan and program, strategy, 